This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with scoops today from Blacking It Up, The Young Turks, a Best of the Left activism update, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, La Show, The Progressive, The Majority Report, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. And a note for our listeners sensitive to mind-bending paradoxes, this episode acknowledges the existence of both racism in America and an African-American president. And so when you when you t- think about that, when you think about how that works and why uh, liberals and progressives and Dems were all pissed at oh, at, at Bush, mm-hmm. and then you look at the vitriol that has come about Obama, and he hasn't done one tenth of the stuff that Bush has done. And please know, Obama's done some stuff. Please, uh, Obama's done some stuff. Drone attacks, Guantanamo's still open. Obama's done some stuff, but he still has not done what Bush did, and. We we never got to this level of attack at Bush, and I feel like you have to acknowledge. I know people don't want to acknowledge it because I love when I read people like a couple times. Like Baratunde has posted some questions on his Google Plus. I remember one time it came up on Pinterest. I, I saw someone's Pinterest post because they posted a picture of Obama. It like said four more years or something like that, and all they broke Pinterest for a day. Like people freaked out. And like all of their hate and, uh, and uh, follow the White House on Instagram, you will see the hate that comes down every time the White House says anything about the president. It's just nothing but pure, unadulterated hate. And you have to ask the question: Why? It's not that's it's it's not just that he's that he's Democrat because he's not progressive. Let's be uh, let's also be very clear about Obama because everyone's like, well, maybe people just don't like liberals and progressives. He's not that liberal. Nope. He's not a progressive. He is a moderate. He ran as a moderate, so understand that as well. But he's a moderate, and he gets he gets put in this thing, this this this, this uh, box, so that they can have their uh, their rationale to hate on him. But then, when you actually look at the rules and regulations, you realize it doesn't qualify. It doesn't work. It doesn't. When you do the math, when you do the formulas, it does not work. He is not what they say he is, but they have the hatred, and that's their rationale. And again, ask why. Mm. Just ask why. And and, and and if you can come up with a, a reasonable response, you are better than me. I will I will read your reasonable response. Please write it up. I'll, I'll read it. I'll probably think that you're a little bit nuts, but I'll, I'll read it. I'll try. <laughs> open mind. I, I'll try to have the open mind, yeah. but un- understand that. I just, I clearly, because I feel like this, this, this conversation comes up a lot, and I love to hear how the, uh, the conservatives every day, because I watch, I watch Morning Joe in the morning, I'll flip over to Fox News sometimes, and I'll listen to uh, these pundits come on, and they explain their dislike for Obama. And it's never, it's never clear. And it's like, this, you have absolute hate. You have absolute hate for this man, but that's your like this morning. Oh my God, Grover Norquest was on um, Morning Joe. That dude, that dude. I need that dude to be tripped in the street. Like at least one. I need him just to like skin up his knees, like and like get like a scab. I want like his his, his the palm of his hand bleeding a little bit because I need him to fall once or twice because he was just so so confident in his in, in, in his arguments that were not did not make sense when he started talking about like the raising of taxes that obama's raising taxes like wait well first of all he gave the biggest middle class uh, tax uh, break in like years so he's not raising taxes at all the only thing he wants to do is let the bush tax cuts expire and then i had a progressive today tweet at me um i'm on your side and everything but if the if uh, the bush tax cut expiring that would be a raise in taxes and i was like 
actually, that's not really raising taxes. That would let a a, 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 a form of legislation expire, which means there was a time frame, which means that's not raising taxes. If they were permanent, then yes, because that's what the Republicans want. They want the Bush tax cuts to become permanent. They are not permanent. They were never permanent. And so the fact is, if they are allowed to expire, and that is not raising taxes that means that you got a lot of years of awesome tax rates that you were lucky for because they weren't permanent and that is something that we should understand on our side like and clearly say it because progressives should never be like well yes the taxes will go we will raise taxes with that we're not raising taxes we are letting something to expire we're going Going back back to the way it was was. because of the whole reason behind all the tax uh stuff and the reason why it was allowed to uh uh be put in place was because we had to we had to uh do these things we had to create these bush tax cuts and everything because we were going through an economic issue remember 9-11 a bunch of other things that were happening we needed to make sure that the country was going to continue growing and doing all that other stuff so we put these things into play that he knew he couldn't make permanent at that time so they made it that it expired Well, for those who uh, deny that there's racism in the country, there is a different story uh, that was reported on back in November of 2011, and it involved a 68-year-old American, African-American Marine vet by the name of Kenneth Chamberlain. So he was at home in White Plains, New York, and his life alert came on, uh, or, you know, it, it's a medical alarm pendant, and it mm-hmm. went off accidentally. Now, sure. police responded to the scene. Uh, but he told them, he's like, I'm okay, everything's fine, you know, y- y- it was an accident, you guys can leave. But the cops refused to leave. In fact, they remained there and started calling him, uh, you know, racial slurs. And um, basically it escalated to the point where they barged into the home uh, and they uh, took out a 40 caliber uh, weapon and shot him twice until he was dead. Now, understand the absurdity of this because they came to help him. His medical alert went off. There's nobody calling in a crime. There's no emergency as in, there's no emergency other than the fact that they found a black person and needed to mess with them in some way. I mean, they use the N-word, so you begin to get a sense of where their head was at, right? But I mean, why would you go when a medical device goes off and think, I gotta break down this guy's door, I gotta tase him and then I gotta shoot him, right? Like, why does that even occur to you? And then think about this, again, for the racism deniers, as Anna just called them. Do you think that if it was a white person in Beverly Hills, that the cops would have gone to respond to a medical alert, and a guy says, hey, I'm okay, you can go back home. And they go, oh yeah, we're gonna break down your front door in Beverly Hills, and we're gonna come, and the guy says, okay, I'm all right, I'm all, it was a medical thing, it went off by accident, I'm fine. And then they tase him, and then they shoot him. Yeah. A white guy in Beverly Hills. What do you think the chance of that ever happening is? I'm going to put it at negative 98%. Okay? It's beyond inconceivable that would happen. What's interesting about this story is, uh, I love that you mentioned the taser, something that I I missed. Uh, So they did have a taser, and that device actually has uh, a recorder on it, right? And the device recorded the police officer 
calling the Chamberlain the N-word. Okay. Right. And his medical alert, once it had gone off, recorded for for like nearly an hour. Yeah. Okay. And so they have it all on tape. And so. What's happening to the cops? Absolutely nothing. The police department refuses to release the name of the police officers who uh, responded to the life alert. So this, you know, the Trayvon Martin story is an important story because I think it really brings up a huge issue we have in the country. The story itself is tragic and you want justice for Trayvon Martin and his family. But at the same time, what I just told you guys about Chamberlain is something that happens on a regular basis in the country. You know, JR brought up a different story uh, last week about a woman who went into the hospital. She was a homeless woman. She's black. She needed medical attention immediately. They immediately brushed her off. They sent her to jail because she refused to leave. She had a blood clot in her leg that traveled to her lung, and she died while in jail. Okay, so these kinds of stories happen all the time. And... People like Liz Trotta are destructive because they deny the mistreatment of blacks in this country. We had covered the story of a baseball player's son in a, you know, in a, in a fancy part of town, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, and he had pulled up in his car in his driveway, and the cops had shot him. Even though his mom had come out and said, out of the house, told the cops, "He's my son. I live here." They shot him anyway. Okay. Now, Jr. just looked into that. What happened to those cops? They must have gotten the full brunt of the law, right? Acquitted. Uh, but that's <laughs> the thing, and it was it was based in. They said the the police acted um, in accordance in the way that they were trained to, because they said looks like he's reaching for something in his jacket or his waistband, something around that area. And they said with that motion, they were trained to believe that he was pulling something out. So it was on that basis. No, but think about it this way: they would have never gotten to that point if they hadn't pulled him over for being black in that neighborhood, in that particular case, right? Like, a white guy doesn't get into that trouble. He doesn't get into, I'm reaching for my license and they accidentally shoot me, because they didn't pull him over in the first place. They think this is a white neighborhood, or this is, and that's it, right? We're done with that story. If it's a white guy in Beverly Hills, as an example, right? They don't break down his door and tase him in the first place, so that when his medical alert goes off, that's why I think this case is so unbelievably egregious. So. They're not in there thinking, oh, well, he reached for something, so I had to shoot him dead. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's part of the, how the infrastructure, unfortunately, of this country, and it's not to say all people, it's not even to say a majority of white people or a majority of cops. Unfortunately, though, some of the cops have a system where they assume that the black guy did it. Even if he's got a medical condition, they're like, he must be guilty of something. Mm -hmm. We had to break down his door. He was an N-word, and we had to shoot him. And, and then you can't get any justice. And that's what drives people crazy. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
Welcome to the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the Activism Czar at bestoftheleft.com. If you've been hearing a lot about the group ALEC over the past few months, this is why. ALEC, short for the American Legislative Exchange Council, claims to be a nonpartisan business interest group. However, last year, the Center for Media and Democracy unveiled a trove of 800 model bills and resolutions secretly ghostwritten by big global corporations, many of which ended up in our state legislatures and then voted into law by our political representatives. But over the past year, this secrecy is coming undone. We are exposing the corporate collusion between big business and conservative politicians that are reshaping our democracy state by state. Alex's agenda is simple include as many big industry tax loopholes, tax breaks for the rich, outsourcing American jobs, slashing the minimum wage, and weakening our efforts to regulate public health, safety, and the environment. And now they are targeting who can vote. African Americans and other minorities have a long history of supporting Democratic candidates. Colorofchange.org is launching a new awareness and petition campaign to demand corporations end their relationship with ALEC. First, Color of Change is increasingly concerned how ALEC is pushing discriminatory voter ID legislation that suppresses the votes of minorities, the youth, low-income voters, and the elderly by erecting these potential disenfranchising barriers against millions. Proponents of ALEC's model legislation claim that these measures are merely to reduce electoral fraud, despite no evidence that voter fraud is even occurring on a noteworthy scale. This measure is implicitly designed to target the black vote. Second, ALEC works with the NRA to aggressively pass laws like Florida's Stand Your Ground, implicated in the recent shooting death of Trayvon Martin, which lends itself to promote hate crimes and the use of vigilante justice. So here's what you can do to stop ALEC and its racist, undemocratic agenda. Go to our link bit.ly slash stopalec to help Color of Change petition the companies involved. The negative media attention and petitions have proven effective thus far, with many big corporations such as Walmart cutting their ALEC ties. With just a few clicks of the mouse, you too can show your support to stop corporate-funded voter suppression. This has been a Best of the Left activism update. For more information about the links mentioned in this segment, please consult the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. Sometimes I find myself feeling, listening and moaning in a plastic sea. This signs and signals bidding for attention from me. So turn on your city. Something somewhere sometime Yeah, I said if I wounded you I'm sorry I had good intentions And if I wounded you I'm sorry There's a convention often invoked in the corporate media that says if you're criticizing one side, you must say something harsh about the other side too, what's often called false balance. So how would one apply this to the case of Trayvon Martin? Time columnist Joe Klein shows us how. Klein's time column speaks forcefully to the obvious racism on the right. He slams some Republican politicians for indulging in it. Certain presidential candidates, he says, are, quote, desperate men playing on the ignorance and racist bigotry of their audiences, close quote. What, then, is the flip side to that, the balance? Klein manages to find it. 
Democrats are at fault, too. Quote, the past 20 years have seen great racial progress in this country. The killing of Martin by a vigilante crime watch stalker was an exception to the norm. The vast majority of African Americans who are shot suffer at the hands of other African Americans, close quote. We could stop here for a moment and ponder the idea that racial progress is marked in part by black people mostly being killed by other black people. But Klein goes on, quote, But here's Al Sharpton with the imprimatur of MSNBC acting as racial ringmaster for another media circus. And here's Jesse Jackson back looking for some camera time, too. I'm sure the Limbaugh-Drudge wing of the Republican Party is thrilled that the Democrats are drifting back into racialist politics after a 20-year hiatus, close quote. That's an all-too-familiar list. Al Sharpton, the camera-seeking Jesse Jackson, and Democrats who are endangering themselves by an embrace of racialist politics. It's strange to be outraged that civil rights activists are doing civil rights activism. But there's more to it. For certain white pundits like Joe Klein, Barack Obama's election held out the possibility of a post-racial society, where people like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton would be totally unnecessary. Sometimes you get the sense that Trayvon Martin's killing is a reminder that things didn't work out that way, and the pundits blame Al Sharpton for it. Maybe someday if we stay this way and you see my face in a different place, you Former deadbeat dad Congressman Joe Walsh is repeating the claim that President Obama got elected because he's black. Now, I say former deadbeat dad because it did become public after his uh, ex-wife Laura filed a lawsuit against him for failure to pay close to $120,000 in child support. They posted a joint statement to Walsh's campaign website saying that they've reached a deal and that the issue has been dismissed in court. So it is former deadbeat dad. Joe Walsh Lewis, don't you dare call him a current deadbeat dad. Here's what he had to say about Barack Obama and being elected because he's black. Again, let's not overlook the fact, guys, guys and gals, folks. Right. He was a historic figure. He's our first African-American president. The country voted for him because of that. It made us feel good about himself. Right. So there's Joe Walsh saying... It wasn't because Barack Obama, because anyone thought Barack Obama was going to be a, a good president. President Obama got elected because Americans felt some sort of feel-good obligation to vote for the white guy. I guess he's kind of implying, what, white guilt over slavery? Is that kind of the implication here? It sounds like it. At any rate, President Obama was not elected because of his skin color, and Walsh's theory really doesn't hold up. Now, let's say, here, I'll tell you why. Let's say Mitt Romney wins in November, and let's say liberals declare Obama lost because of racism, anti-black racism. We all know Republicans would deny this as an outrageous accusation. After all, they're not racist. Remember, Lewis? Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. So this is where the Republican logic fails, because if Obama can't be defeated because he's black, he certainly can't win because he's black either. 
simple logic, but I think it's going to be lost on uh, on many Republicans. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. As the Trayvon Martin controversy continues, question remains, who was heard crying for help on that 9-11, sorry, 9 call? According to the Orlando Sentinel, a leading expert in the field of forensic voice identification, says it was not George Zimmerman calling for help, despite the uh, claims by the families of Mr. Zimmerman and his lawyer that it was him, that it was he calling for help. Actually, two Experts have examined the uh, 911 tapes and uh, have decided that it was not George Zimmerman calling for help. There's a lot of controversy about the whole case, of course, much of it centering around the Stand Your Ground law. Florida and more than 30 other states have passed, making it legal to shoot someone when uh, you feel you might be threatened rather than feel you should flee. Uh, and the law, as I said, has come in for a lot of criticism. It needs a defender, and who better than today's NRA? Today's NRA, shooting straight to your heart.
future I've never seen you here before Hey, stranger Not gonna see your face no more Paramedics frowned Cause I stood my ground I'm out here alone Don't have a racist bone Just a guy on watch Belly full of scotch Forget the schoolboy con Better just move on Hey baby, what's that sound? Sounds like I stood my ground Hey, stranger There's a reason why we got a gate You're going home inside a crate Cause I'll stand my ground You go back to town I'll stand my ground I'll stand my ground Finally, George Zimmerman's been arrested. It's amazing it took so long. If the roles had been reversed, if Trayvon Martin had shot Zimmerman dead in the street, you can bet that Trayvon would have been arrested and charged right away, not 46 days later. And let's be clear here. The only reason Zimmerman ultimately got charged was because people at the grassroots, in the streets, on Facebook and Twitter, on Progressive Talk Radio and on MSNBC made a stink about it. Otherwise, it would have been just another case of racist law enforcement, of stand-your-ground injustice, of white castle doctrine. Remember, it took a long while for the outrage to build. Trayvon Martin was killed way back on February 26th. Most Americans didn't start hearing about the case for almost a month. And had it not been for the outspokenness of Trayvon Martin's family and the help of Al Sharpton and the anger that every parent and especially black parents felt at this injustice, we may never have heard about this case at all. It's a case, though, much larger than Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. It's a case about race in America. And it's a case about the control of our state legislatures by anti-democratic forces like the NRA and ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Whatever the outcome of Zimmerman's trial, the jury will still be out on the fate of our democracy. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Listen if you're missing y'all, swinging while I'm singing, hey! giving what you're getting, knowing what I'm knowing, while the black band's sweating, in the rhythm I'm rolling, rolling. gotta give us what we want, uh. gotta give us what we need, hey! <laughs> our freedom of speech is freedom of death, we, we got, got to fight the powers that be, fight the power, fight the power, fight the power, fight the power, fight the power. Here's an interesting story and disturbing. Marissa Alexander is a 31-year-old woman. She's a mother of three. She is now pleading for her freedom as an inmate in Duval County Jail in Jacksonville, Florida, Lewis. And this story 
really shows the incredible subjectivity and hypocrisy with which stand your ground laws in Florida are enforced. Here's the situation. The context is George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin. I don't want to rehash the entire thing, but as we know, Zimmerman killing Martin after he claimed he feared for his life because the unarmed Martin, armed only with Skittles, a lot of high fructose corn syrup, and apparently iced tea, decided to, I guess, threaten Zimmerman in some way. That's the story we're hearing. Zimmerman given the benefit of the doubt. It was stand your ground. It was self-defense. Only after several months was he arrested and a lot of uh, uh, of organizations saying that he is being unfairly targeted because this dangerous 17-year-old black teenager was going to kill. So you did rehash the whole story. <laughs> there we go. Okay. So now we have Marissa Alexander. Now on August 1st, 2010, the background of this is that Marissa Alexander uh, was with her husband Rico Gray. Rico read some text messages that she was exchanging with an ex-husband of hers and Gray became enraged thinking that his wife was being unfaithful, started uh, according to, to Marissa Alexander, strangled her, put his hands around her neck. She managed to escape his grip, was running around the house. She planned to get into her car, which was in the garage, and drive away. Actually, this is the duty to retreat that we see with self-defense. She was actually doing that. She was trying to retreat. Turns out when she got into the garage, she didn't even have her car keys. Okay, So uh, in the confusion of this fight, she didn't have her car keys. The garage door wouldn't open. She couldn't get out. So she says, I knew I had to protect myself. I couldn't fight him. He was 100 pounds more than me. I grabbed my weapon at that point. So, Lewis, we have a situation here where well, she actually... She just happened to have it on her? Uh, you know, she, she, um, she had a pistol. Yeah, I mean, it, she, it, as far as we know, this was a legal gun. No, I mean, she was running from him. She ends up in the garage but then somehow has her gun on her? I don't know where the gun was, whether it was the garage or not. She raised the gun to him. He said um, that he would kill her. He would kill her, and that was absolutely what she believed he was going to do. That's what he intended to do. She did not discharge her weapon until that happened, and she shot the weapon. Now, here's the interesting thing. She didn't shoot her husband. She shot the weapon at the ceiling to scare him off, and it did. At that point, her husband left with his two kids, and she was she is now under arrest for three counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. There is an admitted history of sexual or, or physical abuse from Gray. In a previous incident, Alexander said he beat her so severely he ended up in jail and she ended up in the hospital. Okay, not two people who don't know each other like Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, and uh, she is in jail here. We seem to have a very different standard for stand your ground, which she she attempted to use. Her attorney attempted to say, this was stand your ground. She feared for her life. Not happening. Double standard? Anybody? I, I just don't understand where the assault is. She was assaulted. That's what I thought. Natan, what do you think of this one? Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear. She, I mean, what else is there to say about this? Does race pr play a role here? Does race play a role? Does the fact that the victim in the Trayvon Martin story was black, and here the shooter is black, even though she didn't shoot anyone. Does that play a role? What can we say about that? Um, <clears throat> race, it might play a role. I mean, what we were talking about originally with the Trayvon Martin case n was not about whether George Zimmerman was racist, but whether or not the uh, the people who were go needed to prosecute him were racist. Well, should she have actually shot and killed her husband? Then maybe it would be more credible. Listen, if you feared for your life, Why'd you shoot at the ceiling? Maybe you should have shot your husband. I mean, is that the point we're at, where stand your ground is only believable? 
if they actually follow through with a killing and then allege that it is self-defense? Is that the or, state or of affairs? Or does stand your ground only apply to a murder? No, I don't no? believe that that's the case. Okay. No, certainly not. Well, what, I mean, Natan, maybe, he, maybe she should have killed him. Maybe she wouldn't be in jail if she had killed him. Somehow, I don't think so. Well, I mean, if it's true that stand your ground is, an, is a defense that people use when they kill someone and not when they do anything else, when, when in this a, it's case, a defense you use, you use the gun when to you were defend, When you are acting to defend yourself. It doesn't matter whether you kill the person or not. Right. Well, I think she showed a remarkable amount of restraint. That's the incredible thing. Yeah. The restraint George Zimmerman did not show and may end up actually being acquitted right. uh, uh, with. It's, it's really incredible. It is. Call that several weeks ago, the National Review fired one of its writers who had been writing for them for 12 years. And over the years, this guy had written stuff that some of us whining lefties claimed sounds a little bit racist or a lot of bit racist or very misogynist. And finally, the National Review fired him for a piece he published, uh, I guess it was about a month ago, that was unequivocally, not to say that the other ones were equivocally racist, but one that was even that much more sort of sensitive because it was in response to the Trayvon Martin shooting. And he had written, basically instructing parents on how to train their children, more or less, on how to be racists. And so he was fired. Remember, this is a guy who wrote for the National Review for 12 years. And somehow they didn't notice that this guy was such a racist. Everybody else did. And now uh, Derbyshire writing on the white nationalist site vdare.com, the enemies of conservatism are eager to supply their own nomenclature. White supremacist seems to be their current favorite. It is meant maliciously, of course. Yes, of course. Uh, to bring up images of fire hoses, attack dogs, pick handles, to imply that conservatives, especially non-mainstream conservatives, are cruel people with dark thoughts. Leaving aside the intended malice, Derbyshire writes, I actually think white supremacy is not bad semantically. White supremacy in the sense of a society in which key decisions are made by white Europeans is one of the better arrangements history has come up with. There have, of course, been some blots on the record like uh, a few, like uh, those wars where all those millions of people killed. Uh, what's that blot to the 
oh, Holocaust and uh, oh, the Nagasaki and uh, we dropped that nuclear weapon, the atomic bomb and the Iraq. There's some blots. Look, we've made some mistakes. We're going to move on. Accept some measure of responsibility, but not let it get in our way. There have been, of course, some blots on the record, but I don't see how it can be denied that net-net white Europeans have made a better job of running fair and stable societies than has any other group. Stalin considered a uh, white European? Uh, for 12 years, this guy writes the magazine. And they are just shocked! I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, some people say that, you know, the word racist gets thrown around too much, especially when talking about conservatives. Uh, well, um, you would be wrong in the case of John Derbyshire. Now, John Derbyshire is the guy who got fired from the National Review. You remember his story? And he had written uh, what appeared to be an unquestionably racist rant, not on the National Review, but in another online magazine. And it was just so over the top that they had to let him go. So John Derbyshire has decided to go to the openly hostile and hateful uh, website, vdare.com, and make his positions even more clear. Okay? So in case you weren't sure whether this conservative who had been doing racially veiled attacks for his entire 12-year uh, you know, career at the National Review, whether he was racist or not, he's just going to come out and come out of the closet on this one. So, quote, in his latest article, white supremacy, in the sense of a society in which key decisions are made by white Europeans, is one of the better arrangements history has come up with. There have, of course, been some blots on the record, but I don't see how it can be denied that net-net white Europeans have made a better job of running fair and stable societies than has any other group. So when he no longer has to hide and do dog whistles, etc. He says, all right, fine, you got me, man, I'm a white supremacist. Come on, white people are better than black people and all other kinds of people. Can anyone argue that whites aren't better at running societies, fair and stable societies? Yeah, I can make that argument. Okay, so for example, a guy like John Derbyshire, if he was around during the time when the Egyptians were the top empire in the world, he would have been like, oh, can anyone make the case net net? that the North Africans are the superior race. <laughs> Come on, it's so obvious. Where else would you rather be? In the jungles of Europe? 
With those barbarians up in the Rhineland? No, of course not. The North Africans are the superior race. It's obvious. Look at Egypt. If he was around during the time that the Greeks were in charge, well, of course the Greeks are the geniuses. Now, of course, he's the kind of guy who would say, there's idiot socialists in Greece. They don't know anything. Okay, how about in the 1500s when the Turks were the, the Ottoman Empire was the largest empire in the world? Of course, these ignorant people, they don't know anything about history. They're like, what? His letters, look it up. There's letters from like the French kings begging the Ottoman Empire, please, please don't invade us. What would you like? We'll send you our gold. We'll send you our women. Just please, for the love of Christ, don't invite, invade us. Okay? So back then, you would have said, can anyone argue? that obviously the Turks are the superior race. How about for like a thousand years when the Chinese were kicking our ass, <laughs> whether we're Europeans, Turks, whoever else we happen to be, right? Well, obviously the Chinese are the superior race, right? And we can go on and on. How about when the Arabs in the years 700s, 800s, when they were the top empire in the world? Well, can anyone make an argument that of course the Arabs aren't the superior race? You are so fundamentally stupid, John Derbyshire. So I'm glad that you've added yourself and then when you don't have the restraints anymore, that you give us your real opinions and your real vicious racism. This is just the tip of the iceberg, here we go. He keeps saying, quote, conservatism incorporated, he means the establishment right wing, or otherwise is a white people's movement, a scattering of outliers notwithstanding. In other words, minorities, who are we kidding? This is for white people. Always have been, always will be. I have attended at least 100 conservative gatherings, conferences, cruises, and jamborees. Let me tell you, there ain't too many raisins in that bun. I love it when they're finally honest. I love it when they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh we're open to everybody. Come, come, get real, get real, get real. The right wing, the entire conservative establishment is for white people, okay? And he says, there are some exceptions which I really enjoy. Here we go. I was in and out of the National Review offices for 12 years. And the only black person I saw there, other than when Herman Cain came calling, was Alex, the guy who runs the mailroom. Hey, Alex. You see the profound respect that they have black, for black people. But of course, this is for white people. So we got the mailroom guy, this Herman Cain idiot that we use. This guy that we bought off comes in here and we pat him on the head and go, good job raising in the bun. Okay. If all this isn't clear enough, let's make it more clear. Conservative ideals uh, like self-sufficiency and minimal dependence on government have no appeal to underperforming minorities, groups who in the statistical generality are short of the attributes that make for group success in a modern commercial nation. Well, of course you have to ask for welfare because you're inferior. And obviously you're going to beg for our uh, help and support because that's how inferior you are. If that's not clear enough, I'll give you one last one. Of what use would it be to them to embrace such ideals? They would end up even more decisively pooled at the bottom of society than they are currently. So, if you actually were self-sufficient, if society was self-sufficient and would just relied on that, well, obviously minorities would be even lower than they are now because they can't be self-sufficient, they're not superior like the white race. This is a guy that if you had said two months ago, John Derbyshire, based on all the other veiled racist things that he has written, was a racist, they would have been 
outrage. How could you? This is a respected member of the right wing. The pundits and establishment, he's with the National Review, he's so well respected. Of course he doesn't mean anything racist by it, of course not. No, he's just trying to, you know, push forward conservative ideals. And since you disagree with that, you're going to go ahead and call him a racist. <laughs> but now that he's been fired from that, he goes, oh, thanks God. Let me let loose here on what I actually think and what, by the way, everybody in that building thinks. He was in the building for 12 years. They laughed at Alex, the black guy in the mailroom. <laughs> Look at this. So of course it's for white people. Were you so stupid that you didn't realize that after all the crap that we wrote, all the crap that we pushed for, you didn't get that this was for white people? Well, I guess that's what makes you inferior. That's what they actually think. When you actually, and by the way, the guy has cancer now. They're raising money for chemotherapy. And they're trying to evoke some sort of sympathy for him. Look, man, good luck to you. I don't wish you ill, but I certainly don't wish you well. Okay? Here's the level of sympathy I have for you. Not a goddamn iota of sympathy. Okay? Anyway, the reason I bring that up is because I think he thinks, damn it, man, I, I might be going any day soon. I've got to let him know what I really think. White people rock! Yes, I'm so free, I can finally say it. I love white people and I hate black people. Just, God, oh, oh, that's what they, everybody in the building wants to say, but thank God I could finally say it. A North Carolina newspaper called the Statesville Record and Landmark printed a uh, KKK rally flyer on page one. Let's put that up, Natan. Um, this is interesting stuff. Oh, boy, that's, that's difficult to see. Um, what, what this is here is it's basically a flyer which talks about that there is going to be a KKK rally, and it was placed on the front. And, and cross-lighting. There's going to be a cross-lighting, which I think is really a cross-burning, right? Is that the new politically correct term, calling it lighting the cross? I guess so. And it also says that there is free admission. Admission is spelled incorrectly. There's also free on-site camping. camping. There will be food and drink vendors and, of course, souvenirs. It also mentions white people only. Now, a lot of people complained and said, how can this newspaper run this uh, promoting this event? Now, separate from this, there was an editorial that ran that said, evil in our midst, uh, midst can't be ignored. If someone had asked you on Tuesday if the KKK was active in our county, chances are you would have said no. Basically making the case that it, this was a difficult decision, but a consensus decision to run this uh, uh, flyer in the paper to show what elements are there. What's your reaction to that? I mean, it's similar to the question on this show. Do you create a platform by exposing outrageous views that wouldn't otherwise be there? Or is it good to be aware of those things? You know, I think uh, the latter. Yeah, when you're putting it on page one, I think it becomes pretty clear that what you're trying to do is draw attention to it. Okay, but draw attention to it in a promotional sense or to point it out and ridicule it? Uh, to point, I'm assuming to point it out and ridicule it. Okay, Natan, I mean, uh, is this the type of thing where even if the editorial runs on a different page explaining the decision to run this, putting that on the front page is bad? Um, 
It's hard to say. Um, I think putting it on the front page is definitely unnecessary. Um, it would make more sense to maybe include the flyer in an article. So it's very clear that you can't separate the ad from the commentary on it. Uh, other than that, it's just ambiguous, and I think it's probably bad. It does get into that question where we, when we have somebody on like uh, Paul Cameron talking about his anti-gay views or whoever, people say you're creating, the, you're giving the guy a platform. And my thought has always been, these views don't go away if I don't interview this person. It's best to challenge and, and try to fight with facts. The problem is it seems that the facts that were being used to fight this type of KKK mentality weren't really that clear on the front page of the paper. Mm. Well... I mean, here's another story today, which we really don't know the, the intentions of, of the editors and the people involved. Um, what more can we say about it, really? Maybe we can't say too much more. We don't like it. We, we don't like the KKK. We can say that. Yeah, that's, I think, what we could agree on with certitude. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves. Blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Despite overwhelming evidence of its abuse, the New York City Police Department's policy of stopping and frisking overwhelmingly black and brown young men, the vast majority of whom have committed no crime, has always had its defenders. These include the Washington Post's Richard Cohen, whose May 14th column describes the program as racist on its face, as raising profound civil liberties issues, and indeed as a certain kind of hell for young black and Hispanic men. But then he warns against approaching it with censorious political correctness because nowadays in New York, Cohen says, the sound of a car alarm is almost nostalgic. While the New York Times, for its part, editorially decried stop and frisk, their May 13th editorial noted that the criterion of furtive movements most often used for stopping disproportionately black and Latino people is, quote, so vague as to be meaningless, close quote, that people of color are treated more violently than white people when stopped, and that the excuse that stop and frisk keeps guns off the street is not supported. The paper's conclusion, quote, the mounting evidence reveals a pattern of abusive policing that warrants the attention of the Justice Department, which should be using its broad authority to investigate these practices, close quote. But wait a minute, wouldn't such an investigation, if it happened, be just more evidence that's mounting? Because that's the thing. As noted in a recent article in Extra, the Times has been clutching its pearls over stop and frisk for 10 years now. And it's become clear that there is no evidence, no research, no investigation that will move the paper beyond calls for more evidence, research, and investigation. It's hard to escape the conclusion that for the country's paper of record, as for so-called liberal media pundits like Cohen, the fact that a practice violates the human rights of black and brown people every day is simply not sufficient cause to call for its end. Come on, come on. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living? Should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse, I'm black. My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Give a damn about a Negro Pull a trigger, kill a nigga, he's a hero Get it back to the kids who the hell cares One 
him out on the welfare. First ship him, don't let him deal with brothers. Give him guns, step back, watch him kill each other. It's time to fight back, that's what Huey said. Two shots in the dark, now Huey's dead. I got love for my brothers, but we can never go nowhere unless we share with each other. We gotta start making changes. Learn to see me as a brother instead of two distant strangers. And that's how I was supposed to be. I can't double take a brother if he's close to me. Uh, I let it go back to when we played as kids, but then it changed. The Southern Poverty Law Center has filed a complaint against the Jefferson Parish School Board uh, because of the fact that they are sending a disproportionate amount of black students to alternative schools where they're not receiving the same quality education as some of the white students. Oh, uh, see, here you go again, you libs, okay? You know, assuming that just because they're sending a disproportionate amount of African Americans, well, I don't know, maybe there's a higher number of African Americans who deserve to be in alternative schools. You're going to make assumptions about the guy running this program, right? Uh, some people would make that argument. However, I have a little bit of evidence for you. Oh, is that right? Yes. Now, um, the school district has employed a man by the name of Mark Trena. He is a school psychologist, and he is one of the people who is in charge of making the decisions as to who goes to the alternative schools. Now, what's really interesting is um, he has a Twitter account. It's public. And uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center read some of his tweets dating back to January of this year, and he wrote some hideous things about black students. <laughs> Let me give you a couple examples. One tweet said, quote, another young black male thug needs to die. I pray the victim's friends get to him first so the police won't have to kill him. Well, if you were making the case of the guy making the decisions on uh, more African Americans going to the alternative schools as racist, apparently you were right. <laughs> okay. That's as bad as it gets. That's as bad as it gets. That's just one of many tweets. Let me give you another one. He says, we are faced with a young black army of thugs who have declared war on the American way of life, holding America hostage as we speak. All right, so repeated reference to black thugs, and then uh, you know, almost a reference to a race war there. And then on top of that, the first tweet also wished them death. Not the guy you want making decisions about which students get which kind of quality education or lack of quality education. And are you surprised that a guy with those sentiments then says, well, I thought that more African Americans should be in the worst schools. Hmm. And this guy, what's incredible about him is how defiant he is. Now the school board has been notified about this and they said that they're going to do a thorough investigation and I really hope that they do and I hope they get rid of this guy. Um, but he spoke to the Times-Picayune in Louisiana and here's what he had to say about the situation. He says, this is just another way to harass the Jefferson Parish public school system. One only <laughs> needs to read the Times-Picayune to see who the real troublemakers are. Sadly, it is disproportionately young black males. Everyone knows that our jails throughout the United States are disproportionately filled with black people. Why would the rate be any different in an educational environment? All right, well, it's very clear. I thought maybe he was going to do a little bit of a backpedal, no. you misinterpreted. No, 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 he doubled down. He's like, yeah, black people are more violent. And he's like, you know, look at all the black people in jail. That proves my point. That uh, That's why more black kids are in bad schools. Yeah. But wait a minute. You're the racist who put the black kids in the bad schools the first, in the first place. So that actually proves the opposite point. That means there might be more racists like you down there who are putting black people in jail as well. When they don't deserve to be in jail because they make assumptions about how they're black thugs or something. God, you couldn't make your own point of view any worse than you have. Uh, by the way, sometimes we have these discussions and we have a question as to whether a person should be suspended or fired or no, no, no. We don't need any discussion on no, this. this fired guy. immediately before he sends another 
poor kid to a school where he's not going to get a quality education based on his racist, horrible view of blacks in this country.
someone you don't know, like a Wall Street banker or, you know, just society in general, to look at the social causes that lead to poverty. You know, in some ways, it's, it's almost symbolic of how the progressive movement has lost a lot of members of the white working class. I think as progressives, we need to be open to people and compassionate and listen to them. If someone's struggling, you need to listen to them and you need to understand what they're saying and, and feel, open your heart to them and, and feel their pain because the times are tough. It's a tough economy. Everyone's struggling and who can blame them for just wanting a, like a good union job? So, I mean, I'm white, and absolutely, I recognize that white privilege exists, but that's what I have to say. So, uh, thanks a lot. I love the show. I really appreciate it. I found it about six months ago, and it's a really good show. So, thanks a lot for everything. Hi, Jay. This is Rachel. I've been listening to your show on and off for a couple years now, and have been meaning to call in and comment on a variety of issues over time. But a recent piece really struck close to home, quite literally, and pushed me over the edge. So here goes. I'd like to respond to Dave from Springfield's seriously audacious statements regarding white privilege. I know this topic has been discussed ad infinitum and just won't die, so don't mind the repetition on my part. For the record, I'm also from Western Massachusetts, and my mom actually teaches elementary school ESL in the city of Springfield. Uh, I actually take pride in being from the Pioneer Valley and kind of feel like I need to rectify the lousy image Dave has just put forth. As for Dave, I don't know the minute details of your own life situation, but I do know where you're at and have shared the space enough to call your bluff as I see them. Uh, Simon, but your claims of the non-existence of white privilege are extremely short-sighted and myopic and just display a wildly expansive degree of ignorance. Again, sorry to be so harsh, but frankly, I think you need a serious reality check. Uh, yeah, first off, I almost had to laugh when you called Western Massachusetts the quote-unquote real world as opposed to, say, the South. Most of the time I hear people claiming that Western Mass is its own world, a bastion of liberal intellectualism far removed from the angry conservative world outside. Uh, just saying, objectively speaking, you probably can't get a whole lot of leverage out of that particular argument. Uh, as for the real stuff, uh, how did you get that data on race and gender-graded performance on the civil service exam? I'm just asking that nine-point statistics sounds incredibly specific as well as in direct violation of Massachusetts state law. Maybe you want to look into that. I understand your frustration. Long-term unemployment's a bitch no matter how you slice it. That being said, for all the work you do demonizing affirmative action, do you have more than remote anecdotal proof of the so-called injustice it causes. Really, what you've said so far sounds a lot like a rephrasing of a single documented and highly publicized case of the firefighters hiring debate in Connecticut a few years back. It's just been my experience that those who are most vehemently opposed to affirmative action continuously double back to that one event and composite vignettes derived from it as their main point of evidence. Affirmative action is a highly imperfect program, sure, and I understand that a lot of people are not comfortable with the philosophy behind it. That being said, it's one of those, well, it's one thing not to like the concept behind a system, but you need more than a stockpile of ill will and a single overused example to really demonstrate 
that system's ineffectiveness and underlying detriment to society. Uh, yeah, also that white privilege thing that doesn't exist. In a way, the fervor of your denial only proves how entrenched it is in our social psychology. Uh, kind of like trying to see the texture of a contact lens once you put it in or something like that. But no one's claiming that being white guarantees you a charmed life or financial success. The privilege you and I experience by being white in America is infinitely more subtle than that. Really, anything that which can be gauged through monetary means. Really, at its core, white privilege, as it were, has absolutely nothing to do with financial privilege. It's entirely about perception. Uh, once again, I totally get how living in poverty and surviving by the skin of your teeth can be incredibly demoralizing as well as physically draining to anybody, no matter what color they are. There also, I want to really should mention, there are millions of white Americans living in such turmoil and trepidation, and I don't wish to belittle your plight in any way at all. It's probably best to consider white privilege as an all-else-being-equal format, more or less. In many cases, this privilege just means being given the benefit of the doubt. It's really one of those things that we can all too easily take for granted as Caucasians and remain blissfully unaware of our alleged fortune if we surround ourselves with the majority of all white peers. Basically, white privilege is in the little stuff in the back of our brains. It's also the collective result of the subliminal prejudices we all have, fortified by centuries of overtly racist doctrine enforcing these such beliefs. Uh, put it this way, white privilege won't pay off your mortgage, but it might just buy you a little extra time to get your shit together and avoid facing immediate foreclosure on your home. Also, uh, just because you benefit from white privilege, it doesn't mean you're personally guilty of anything about it. Maybe that's what's really got your goat, Dave, and the umpteen other white people who've come on here and other places protesting the title of white privilege as somehow undeserved. We didn't ask for this unfair advantage of our ethnicity. Yeah, I know. Basically, you don't have to apologize for being white. It's not like it was specifically your fault for being born without uh, a certain amount of melanin pigmentations in your skin. I get it. At the same time, it's important to be aware of the effects race still have on cultural interactions and the psychology behind decision-making in America now. I just ask you to give it some thought and send my love out to the 413. As for Jay, thanks again for all your hard work. You are awesome. Keep on keeping it real, and God bless. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I do think this will be the last we hear of this conversation. I, I do. I think we've really stomped it completely into the ground. People responding to Dave in Massachusetts who called in denying the existence of white privilege. You know, it's been talked about a bit for, for a while, but I wanted to play these last two messages because they, they really were, I think, different in tone and i agree very much in principle with with the the first caller who who is basically saying that you know you can disagree with people and you don't have to attack them for it you can show compassion and uh and, and you know give your give your opinion that differs from theirs maybe try to convince them to your side but you don't need to be overly attacking and then rachel's call the last one you heard uh, you know, it is incredibly rare for me to play a, a single voicemail that length, but I thought it was really great. I thought it was appropriately firm, 
yet compassionate and detailed and, uh, you know, all of those things. I thought it was one of the best uh, messages I'd heard in, in quite a while. And so I want to make sure I shared it uh, with everyone before just moving on to another topic and letting it fall by the wayside. So now just a personal note, I, I'm back from my, my trip to Netroots Nation, but that is not even one-tenth of the story because actually, you know, if you've been following along, uh, you know, with all the recent episodes, I, I mentioned before, you know, about three and a half weeks ago, I did a charity bike ride on the East Coast. And uh, so, you know, that was five days. And then it was only going to be two weeks later that Netroots Nation, also on the East Coast, was taking place. And I live out here in the middle of the country, and I just thought, it doesn't make sense to go back and forth and back and forth like that. So I just figured out a way to couch surf with friends between those two events. Uh, the result of which is that uh, you know, I, I left home and didn't get back until three and a half weeks later. And in, the, in between, I slept in 13 different places. So uh, you know, I feel like I just stepped off an, an amusement park ride or something. So I'm back on solid ground, but it still feels like the whole world is spinning around me, and it's it's very odd. But I think the most applicable story from within that that whole trip is that I met I met this guy on the bike ride. Uh, this is a singer songwriter named uh, Ben Soli. I've been a fan of his uh, his music actually for years now, and then I was very excited to see that he was going to be on this ride with me. He plays the cello, and I featured one of his songs in in, in this episode. So during the ride, he played a couple of songs and, and talked a little bit uh, to the group. And during his talk, he was, he was just discussing the crazy schedule of musicians. You know, you're constantly flying across the country or taking a bus from one city to another overnight. And, you know, you wake up in a different place than when you started. And you're always sort of discombobulated and you never know really where you are or necessarily what time zone you're in. And he said, dude, you know, there's a reason why musicians uh, so often get out of control on drugs you know, they're, they're just trying to keep up with the schedule. It's madness. And so to a very small extent, that's sort of how I feel. I've been moving around way more than I'm used to. And it's great to be back where in a place where I know I'll be for more than three days. And, and, I, and I got here before I, you know, started a nasty drug habit. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone who supports the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation. Uh, update on Our Blue Media is that there is a landing page up. If you want to be the first to know about what's going on, just go to ourbluemedia.com and uh, enter your email address. That we're just building a, a small email list uh, of interested people, so we'll, we'll be sending out details on that site as it uh, comes close to completion, uh, especially maybe if you want to become a beta tester as we uh, prepare, as we're building it, and uh, you know before launch, and you want to get your hands on it and help us make it better, make sure we iron out any bugs that may be there, uh, enter your email address on that list uh, to get involved that way. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black, black, black and white. Apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow
Just a fond friend. 